The Canadian immigration process can be complex and frustrating. With the Canadian Immigration Department making it virtually impossible to speak to an officer, there are a few places to turn to for trusted information. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest on immigration law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy, as he is joined by industry leaders across Canada, sharing insight to help you along your way. Well, hello there, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast. This is episode 104, and it's a continuation of our series on business immigration. And my featured industry leader here is Alicia Backman-Behari, my colleague. How are you doing, Alicia? I'm doing really well, Mark. I'm excited about this episode, and it's a, it's a big topic. It sure is, and it is so well-timed. So this is where I get to give a big shout out to Alicia. She's been working with one of the largest construction companies in Canada here on a very large LMIA. And we just got a very, very positive feedback from um, from ESDC, the officer adjudicating the application, that it was, I think it was, she said the best, but I'll say one of the best prepared, most complete LMIA applications that they had received. She didn't put any time frame on it. So I'm going to say of all time, and Alicia worked her tail off on this for this company. It was, you know, we're, we've got 60 total LMIAs, I think, uh, positions within this LMIA. And so, so this topic today is, <laughs> I, I just was talking with Alicia earlier today and I said, she said, well, the, the HR managers did a great job and absolutely they did. We, it's so good to work with people that care, are really smart and just really tackle, um, you know, with, with seriousness what we asked them to do. And they most definitely did that. But mm-hmm. If it wasn't for Alicia driving the ship, 20 years of navigating this crazy world of foreign workers, um, you know, they would have been lost. And and so what is the title of this episode of the Canadian Immigration Podcast? Well, it is where most companies go wrong with LMIAs. And I think it's very, very fitting. And now a message from our sponsor. Journey Business Plans is the leading immigration business plan writing service provider in Canada. With more than 10 years of experience, Journey has grown to become a trusted partner for immigration consultants and lawyers. Journey focuses on preparing business plans for ICTs, startup visas, significant benefits, self-employed PNPs, and so much more. Their main competitive advantage is reliability, responsiveness, and overall customer service. For those of you who don't yet know about Journey, ask your colleagues about them. They're amazing. Or even better, try out their work. I know I have. You can visit their website at www.journey.ca. That's J-O-O-R-N-E-Y.ca. And mention you listen to my podcast. Use the code HOLTHYJOURNEY10. That's H-O-L-T-H-E-J-O-O-R-N-E-Y number 10 and it will provide you with a 10% discount on the first business plan for new lawyers. All right. Thanks so much, Journey. We really appreciate your sponsorship. And by all means, you guys, check them out. So, Alicia, what do you have to say for yourself with this phenomenal result that uh, we've got coming down the pipe? I always like to think it's it's not just me, Mark. I think there's so many pieces that go into the puzzle, and so many other people were working really hard as well. So, 
It requires a number of stars to align, I believe, in order for companies to successfully tackle the world of labor market impact assessments. And that's what I wanted to talk about today, because it's not every company that ought to even contemplate trying to apply for an LMIA, because if you're not going to do it thoroughly and correctly and spend the time and energy and the people hours that are required to do this, then it's probably a bigger risk and a liability than it is an asset in terms of how you proceed with your business immigration strategy and how you proceed as a company in terms of your people risk. So one of the things that you could go wrong with right off the bat is starting this LMIA process and not being prepared. Absolutely. And one thing I want to point out to Alicia as we enter into this first general area of compliance and the importance of doing things right. We're not talking about employers out there that are just deliberately doing things wrong. We're not talking about the employers that are really bad actors that are looking for ways to exploit the foreign workers for financial gain. And we're talking about good, decent companies who genuinely care about their workers, who are interested in helping them to, you know, not only integrate well into their company, but to hopefully stick around for a long time period of time. And when you're wading into the foreign worker program, the officers deal with a lot of bad actors, um, you know, far, far too frequently, which results in then, you know, the system being so strict and so really um, nuanced that the slightest mistake gets your application rejected. And even small little things, you know, and we'll get into this as we go forward, but there were times where I've had companies who have come to us and said, well, we didn't put the wage in our Indeed ad and it got mm-hmm. the whole thing bounced back. Well, why is that? Well, when immigration and, and you know, on the work permit side, they, they don't play any role in this. It's all ASDC and ESDC yeah. and those officers deal with a lot of, like I said, this, this corruption and, and, and really a lot of people who are submitting applications that are not complete and it's just so much work for them to try to, go back and forth collecting the information they need that they reached a stage, I don't know, maybe it was seven, eight years ago, Alicia, where they just said, hey, if there's anything wrong, we're just kicking it back and uh, we'll send you an email, but we're not even going to return your application in the old fax days or mail-in days. So that's what we're dealing with, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it's really important that not only are you setting things up properly, but you realize that there are different stages in a labor market impact assessment application. So one of the first things is is figuring out what position you're even going to be recruiting for and what the National Occupation Classification Code is, because you have to get this right. And Mark's you're talking about all these compliance requirements, and some companies don't realize that they need to keep all of their documentation for six years. Everything that they do in terms of recruiting and advertising and their efforts and payroll documentation and copies of work permits, all of that can be audited. It can be, you can be subject to an inspection for six years. So make sure that you've got everything properly recorded and you've got HR people who know where that information is, especially when you have corporate turnover and you may have one HR person who's no longer there with the company. Make sure that you have some sort of way of cataloging this information and passing it along so that you can you can have everything ready if and when you get audited or inspected in the future. Exactly. And if for whatever reason, you know, as you're going forward, you do not have those things all in order, then employers can be subject to what we call amps and bans. It's the 
the cool way of describing it. But really, what are the amps and bands, Alicia? Well, so there are consequences and there are varying degrees of consequences depending on the level of the contravention. And so you can actually search. And so this is something we talked about in our earlier podcasts when we started talking about business immigration and the PR risks, the reputational risks. If you're doing this incorrectly, there's a website and you can go on that website and see which employers are on there and what sort of violations they have and how long they may have a ban against them. And that ban could be for participating in the labor market impact assessment process. It could involve the cancellation of work permits that have already been issued to that company. There could be financial penalties. In some cases, there's actually criminal liability as well. Absolutely. And one of the things I want to allude to for companies is that reputations are everything. And uh, sometimes there may be a temptation to fudge things just a little bit. And we would strongly, strongly encourage you not to do that because one little fudge now can cause long-term ramifications for your company. And it may not even be a legal consequence. Like Alicia said, it, you know, it, it could be just with respects to bad, bad press. And there's been times in the past when companies that we all know, um, you know, innocently or you know, willfully blind or even deliberately went about doing things that were really pushing the law. And, uh, you know, unions found out about it or the press found out about it and it was a real embarrassment to the company. And so you don't want that black eye in this world of foreign workers, uh, especially when you have Canadian citizens who are really naturally distrustful of the process and this, you know, this, this fear, whether it's rational or just a perception that, foreign workers are taking jobs away from them. So you'd never want to be in that kind of a position because the the weight of public opinion can come down pretty hard on companies. And that's that's a really important point, Mark, because it's not only external actors that companies need to be cognizant of, but it's also internal employees. So what are the other Canadian employees think about this? And has there been a consultation? And do they you know, do they feel secure in their jobs? And do they realize that the only reason that the company is trying to hire a foreign worker is because the company legitimately cannot find Canadians to fill that role. And this is a misperception or something that I think is often not well understood in terms of LMIAs. I think there is this fear that somehow Canadian companies are taking away Canadian jobs. And the whole reason that you have a labor market impact assessment is because you have an officer from ESDC Service Canada assessing whether there's a labor market impact that's positive or neutral by allowing this company to actually hire foreign workers. And if if there isn't a positive or neutral effect, that LMIA is not going to be granted in the first place. And that's the whole purpose of this exercise is really to protect the Canadian labor market. And it's interesting, Alicia, because when the, you know, when the act was originally put in place, all of these assessment factors that, that uh, the officers are supposed to assess were supposed to be treated relatively equally. In other words, the legislative provisions didn't place greater emphasis on, you know, labor shortages or things like that. Things like skill transferability, um, you know, also play a role in the equation. But over time, this has really just come about, you know, the, the main focus and what they really, really are attentive to is, are you taking a job away from a Canadian? 
So that's the approach that you have to take when you go through you. And there are minimum requirements that we'll talk about and we'll jump into those right now. But we never ever work off of the very bare minimums with our companies. We always want to make sure that they're doing maybe just a little bit more so that they're re- providing reassurance to the officer that, hey, we are legitimately looking for Canadians and permanent residents and, and we're, we would hire them if they were there. But we are not just creating an LMIA solely to exclude Canadians and bring in foreign workers. So that is the world. Absolutely. And one of the things to keep in mind is that this world changes. It changes rapidly. It's responding to economic factors. It's responding to changes in labor market. One thing that's interesting to note is in addition to the law, right, we have the regulations, we have the act, we also have ministerial instructions. And so what has traditionally happened is that we had these ministerial instructions that varied who could even process an LMIA. So we had these refusals to process. And historically, Alberta has been one of the provinces where we had historically a refusal to process, depending on what the economic kind of situation was during that period of time. And those have largely been removed now, which is really interesting. So we, as of last year, as of April of 2022, we don't have that same refusal to process for certain positions, for unemployment zones of more or less than 6%. We don't have that refusal to process for certain listed occupations in Alberta either. So these things change and it is important for companies to keep up and keep on track with what's on that refusal to process from the ministerial instruction. And when I talk to other lawyers who are interested in learning about LMIAs, one of the first things I tell them is make sure you've gone and checked that refusal to process because I can't tell you how frustrating it would be for an employer to work with somebody and go through this whole process and then find out, well, wait a minute, we're on the refusal to process list. Yeah. And those those broad sweeping barriers were created you know, there's a lot of politics involved in it as well. And so when you have companies that are in industries where there are unionized environments or there are um, other factors at play, sometimes these things are put up as, as, uh, as a restriction. And if you're not aware of them, then it can come back to bite you far, far down the path. So... All right, Alicia, let's jump in and let's just take a look at some of the key differences in the two pathways that exist within the temporary foreign worker program. And they're really based on wage. And historically, the distinction was high skill, low skill. And we had our old NOC B and NOC CD, where the B and higher, B, A and O was the skilled occupations. And if there was a pathway for those, and then occupations that were in NOC C and D, there was a pathway for that. And then I think it was about in 2014, 2015, uh, then Minister Kenny uh, enacted this lower high wage definition to split the differences between uh, paths um, according to the occupation that the, the, the company wanted to recruit. So maybe you can just touch briefly on these differences because how you deal with you know, the process of applying for the LOIA is directly affected by the wage that that person is going to be paid. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it used to be extremely complex because you used to have 
not only high wage and low wage, but you also had a matrix, like a grid basically, of high skill and low skill. So you had all sorts of different permutations and combinations. But now we're just into a world where there are program requirements for high wage, there are program requirements for low wage. There are also various specific LMIAs for all sorts of unique situations. And we can maybe get into that in some podcast in the future. But for now, we'll, we'll keep it with the basics of the high wage, low wage kind of dichotomy here. So the key thing is to figure out, okay, what position are you going to be recruiting for? And this is one thing where companies go wrong because they figure, oh, well, you know, I need I need an engineer and I need a marketer and I need um, a geomatics technician and I need, so each of those are different positions. So you can't put them all under one LMIA. You have to identify what is the position and take a look at the new national occupation classification code. Keep in mind that this changed last November. So instead of having a four digit code, there's now a five digit code. And so you've got to figure out what is the proper five digit code, not only based on job title, but substantively, what are the main activities in the lead statement of that national occupation classification code? And what are the listed main duties that are mandatory, the ones that don't start with the word may? And this is all important, too, for setting people up to make sure that they are positioning their employees to potentially be eligible for permanent residency, especially under express entry. So whenever we talk with employers, we want to make sure that we're looking long range so that they can set this job up to be described and to actually fulfill a rule that could be making somebody eligible for a permanent resident application down down the line. And for many of you who have had historical experience interacting with the temporary foreign worker program, filing even LMOs, which they used to be called, and uh, more recently the LMIAs, after November, no longer, just to clarify, is it knock 0AB? Now it is tier. So, um, you know, when you classify a position, it could be a tier three position, which would be the equivalent of the old knock B, and still be considered a low wage for the purposes of this program. So how do you determine that? Well, on the ESDC website, you can go and and the, the distinction between low wage and high wage is actually set by each province. And if we take Alberta, for instance, they're constantly changing and updating this. You know, it's not quite on a yearly basis, but as things start to ramp up and as the economy continues to heat up, we can very, very much expect that they will have modifications. So you need to watch that. And like I said, it it depends on where your particular wage falls as to which path you follow. So for example, for Alberta, as of April the 30th of 2022, um, the wage was, it used to be 27.28. And then now that median hourly wage is actually 28.85, which aside from the Northwest Territories and Nunavut um, and uh, the Yukon, I guess, Alberta is higher than everywhere else in the uh, in the provinces. And uh, if you look at Ontario, where a lot of our clients come from as well, their median wage, or at least the low to high wage cutoff, um, used to be 2404, <clears throat> excuse me, and then it took a big jump up to 2606. And Alicia, I just had this discussion with, with our bookkeepers, and uh, they... Uh, for the firm, they're actually in the process of, of trying to secure an LMIA for one of their workers. And uh, this is, you know, the bookkeeper was right, about $25 an hour was right where 
they were advertising. But when we looked at it, we saw that the, the cutoff was 2606. So they made the decision to increase the wage to 27. So they had a little bit of a buffer and so that they could go through the high wage process versus the low. And maybe you can clarify why that distinction is important. Yeah, so this becomes really technical and really strategic. And one of the key things that people fail to understand often is that not only do you have this provincial overall median wage. So when we're talking about 2885 for Alberta or 2644 for BC or 2606 for Ontario, basically what they've done is they've looked at all the wages, all the jobs and they've averaged it and they said, "Okay, Overall, this is our demarcation line. Anything above this is going to be considered high wage for the program requirements for LMIAs. Anything above it, below it's going to be low wage. But in order to determine what you're actually paying your worker, you have to go look at what the median wage is for that knock for the location in which your employee is going to be located. So in Mark's example, if you're looking for a bookkeeper in Ontario, you'd need to figure out which city in Ontario or cities in Ontario that person would be working. And there are sometimes different wage listings if you look at JobBank. So JobBank's going to tell you the most up-to-date information usually. And they're going to give you averages and they will look by region, by city, sometimes by province if they don't have the data for that specific city. Once you look at that, you've got to decide, okay, well, do I want to fall within these low wage program requirements or the high wage program requirements? So in that example where you're looking at a bookkeeper, if the median wage for a bookkeeper in the city in Ontario where they're located is pretty close to the overall provincial median of 2606, then it's a judgment call of are you going to advertise and recruit for that above 2606? So are you going to start with the low end being 27? And that's going to bump you into the high wage world in terms of program requirements. And just to provide a little bit more background here, guys, you could have an entry level employee, for example, in Canada. Let's say, let's take this approach because this is for a lot of companies, this is what they're facing right now. Let's say they've got someone on a post-grad work permit and the starting wage, let's say in Ottawa, for instance, for a bookkeeper is $18 an hour. And, um, and that's fine. So you employ them, they're out of school, they complete their, you know, two or three, uh, one or two year program in college and they start working for you and you pay them what you're paying your other Canadians. They're just entry level. They work for a year, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe two years. Um, if you were to start that LMIA process and, uh, and look to apply for an LMIA for them, they would be getting a big raise because mm-hmm. you have to pay the prevailing rate. And the, and the prevailing rate is on the scale, is really the median wage. So it's kind of in the middle. And so they want, in effect, to cause an, you know, uh, an increase in wages. And there's a cost and a premium to hiring foreign workers. And this is where it drops off a lot for many employers because they're just not willing to pay this foreign worker more than they're actually paying their Canadians. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the starting point. A lot of the times with employers, the first thing I say, okay, well, what's the position? Which cities and locations? And sometimes, and this gets more complex, but sometimes the company will have multiple offices in multiple provinces and they actually require people to move and and work in different locations. And then you start to look at, okay, well, you have to basically pick the highest. So if that person's working in Ontario, but they're also going to be working in Manitoba, you've got to pay them the highest rate, even if the rate might be lower in Manitoba. So 
if that company is not willing to offer at a minimum what the median is for that knock in those cities, game over. You're done. Yeah, you're done. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. So let's talk, obviously wage is a, cre a critical component to this, but let's shift now and talk about the actual differences and requirements generally between high wage and, and low wage. Mm -hmm. And this is why it matters. So this is why it's absolutely essential to get it right, because the recruiting and the advertising requirements are different if you are hiring for a low wage position or if you are hiring for a high wage position. So assuming you are in the low wage world, <clears throat> the government is going to require a little bit more from employers because there's more room for abuse here. And so some of the things that are just basically required would be making sure that if you're advertising for low wage, you're advertising to two different underrepresented groups in addition to advertising on the job bank. And they have listed what the underrepresented groups are in Canada generally. So we've got youth, we've got, um, well, they, they sometimes list veterans, but it's also uh, newcomers to Canada. So people who are a new permanent residents of Canada, people with disabilities, and uh, Indigenous populations. So we have different underrepresented groups. And if you are in a low wage world, then you need to advertise on JobBank plus two different ways of accessing different underrepresented groups. And one thing I want to point out, <clears throat> when you go to the ESDC website and you're trying to sort this stuff out, you guys, this is not laid out nice and easily to follow. It is not you, when you're reading through, you pretty much need to keep, uh, you know, a notepad or something beside you and make note of all of the requirements as you're reading these paragraph after paragraph of information. And it's very easy to, to miss the fact that, you know, you, you need to have all of these different locations that you need to advertise in. Yeah. And the difficulty too is that ESDC Service Canada does not tell you which websites to advertise on. They don't tell you where to do it or how to do it, but you do have to do things that are in line with industry standard. And so there is going to be some discretion here. There is going to be some, some common sense double check in terms of how you're recruiting. But keep in mind that if you are in the low wage world, it's two different underrepresented groups. The other thing is that there are different requirements for the employer if they want to have a low wage LMIA. And that's <coughs> going to be making sure that they are providing certain basic protections for potential new foreign workers. So that's going to involve making sure that the company eventually is going to cover basic health care premiums until the employee gets set up on their own plan, making sure that they are going to cover transportation from wherever that employee is to the job site, usually from out of country to there. And then sometimes if they have housing, making sure that that employee can be transported from wherever they're staying, their lodgings to the place of employment, and not always providing lodging, but making sure that there is affordable and accessible accommodation within a reasonable geographic area of the lo location for the work. So the trick here is that there's a difference between advertising these things and providing these things as an employer. And this is where employers often get pretty confused. Yeah, absolutely. And just to give the, the listeners a little bit of context, Things are so finicky 
that if you can't show when that advertised was actually uh, advertisement was actually actually placed and for the duration that it had been running they won't accept it and if you look at the methods of recruitment that they list on the website not all of them are easy to track so it says acceptable methods for low wage might be local regional newspapers okay great online classifieds general employment websites well those are all fine but then they get into local stores, places of worship, community resource centers, local, regional, and provincial, you know, employment centers. Well, so you stick a piece of paper up on the bulletin board. How do you prove when you actually posted that? And, uh, and then it goes through all these things, participation at job fairs, partnering with training institutions. So they have all of these different levels and it, the duty is on you. The burden is on you to watch that carefully. And many, many employers that we connect with, this is where things go wrong, you guys. They don't adequately track when those ads started and ended. And, and although we're not quite diving into this area, it's important because there are specific parameters set around which those ads become stale dated. Yeah. And here's the other thing that companies often don't realize if they are wanting to hire under a low wage position is they can't just offer any number of positions. They have a cap. So if you are in the low-wage LMIA world, you are prevented from hiring too many foreign workers by the program itself. So as of April 30th of last year, that cap is usually a 20% cap on the proportion of temporary foreign workers out of your Canadian workforce. So any specific location cannot have more than 20% foreign workers. And some industries do have a slightly higher cap as part of a pilot program, um, and they have a 30% cap. And there are all sorts of little wrinkles about if you're a company with fewer than 10 employees. Well, basically, it's the same rules. It's If it's fewer than 10 employees and you're in a certain industry, it's basically you're limited to hiring two foreign workers or maybe three if you happen to be one in those one of the specific industries that allows the 30%. And this is one of the, the places where I get so frustrated. And this is where we have good actors and bad actors. And then we have some companies that literally go out of their way to exclude Canadians and just fill their ranks with foreign workers. And so why did they ever come up with this convoluted cap system? Well, there's always a history behind it. And CBC Go Public tends to be the determiner of public policy when it comes to immigration and the foreign worker program because there's a CBC Go Public um, piece that happened where people were complaining they weren't getting hours at McDonald's because foreign workers were taking all the positions. <clears throat> and, uh, and so at the time, Minister Kenny, obviously the government doesn't like bad press, instituted these caps to force companies to hire Canadians and permanent residents. And in honesty, often the very first entry into the labor market is these you know, young kids, you know, young university students, high school kids. And when you have a choice as a business owner to hire two amazing Filipino full-time workers who are going to be there all day, working all day, and then one covering the shifts in the evening, and you know they're going to be there, you know that they're going to be reliable, versus 10 casual high school kids, it was pretty easy to see what was going to happen. And so that's what happened. When you post advertisements and you say you need a full-time position, well, very few university and high school kids can work full-time. So it's easy to show that there's a shortage. But in reality, all of those, maybe eight or 10 you know, kids were, were not getting uh, jobs. And that's the position that Jason Kenney took when he was when he was a minister over Employment and Social Development Canada. And so um, that's why we have this. And then over time, as the as the labor market tightened up, and I shouldn't say tightened up, as, as just, you know, 
the the more and more unemployment existed through the you know through the uh, the downturn in the economy <clears throat> with the global recessions then we saw this kind of ratcheting up effect just to make sure you know to protect canadian workers from employers who were while well, they were trying to be profitable Mm-hmm. I mean, there are exceptions to the cap. So, you know, certain employers are excluded from having to deal with the cap for certain low wage positions. And those are on the ESDC website. But keep in mind that that cap isn't, you know, it, it's something that they have to, employers have to keep tabs on. They've got to be able to justify their numbers. They have to be able to show that they have maintained numbers under the cap. Because if you're above the cap, that's one of the things where there's a refusal to process entirely. Right. If you've just asked for too many LMIAs, then you're done. The other thing is that there is now a processing fee, right? So it's it's no longer the good old days where companies could just send in a bulk LMIA, say they wanted 25 positions, and it really didn't matter if they didn't fill those. There's now a government processing fee of $1,000 per position requested. And so it behooves companies to be very specific in terms of what kind of position do we need and how many people do we absolutely require in that position and so if they can fill it with a canadian great they fill it with a canadian and the positions they cannot fill then those are the ones they're going to be looking for the lmia for yeah so yes so wages are, are a big deal um the specific restrictions in terms of how many individuals that you can employ are a big deal uh, one of the things I also want to just to touch on as we're talking about kind of this advertising 101 <clears throat> is the importance of the job bank. And this is a, a location that is, um, it's very regimented. In other words, it's a series of drop downs. You don't have a lot of free fields and free forms to describe your position whatever way you want to. Um, <clears throat> but that's, you know, Alicia, maybe you can just touch briefly on kind of the strategy that we go through when we're, advising companies and and where companies go wrong in terms of the selection and how they put those ads together. Mm -hmm. So, and we still need to talk about high wage too, Mark. So there's all sorts of program requirements for high wage. So if you're doing a low wage LMIA application, you have to advertise on JobBank. Make sure that you have properly set up your employer account and that you've got access to that account. When you advertise, you're very restricted in terms of drop down options for that JobBank advertisement. If you are looking for low-wage positions, then anybody who is granted a two-star ranking under job match must be actively invited to apply for that job within the first 30 days of that ad going live. And this is where a lot of companies have no idea that this requirement exists. They don't understand how job match works. They haven't gone in and they don't realize they actively have to go in within those first 30 days and invite those candidates to apply. It's a different star ranking if you are looking at a high wage. So for low wage, it's two stars. Anybody two stars or above, you have to actively go in and invite. For high wage, it's anybody four stars or above. Also, if you're looking at a high wage LMIA, instead of having to deal with a cap, good news is no cap, 
bad news is you need a transition plan. So you need to make sure that you've got some way of proving to the government that you are going to transition away from using the temporary foreign worker program. You're going to do internal training. Um, you're going to try to have referral programs. You're going to try to do things to train Canadians to take these roles on in terms of high wage positions. And the other thing is that the advertising, no longer do you have to advertise specifically to two different underrepresented groups. You still have to advertise to JobBank, but you have to find other advertising platforms that are unique, two other ones that are unique, but also national in scope. And this is where immigration usually, or ESDC usually says national in scope means that if somebody lands on the main page for that website, they would be able to search throughout Canada without having to go down to a bunch of sub pages within that website. Now, one thing where companies go wrong again, here's another tip and trick, is that what happens when you post on JobBank is normally all those other ad sites just automatically pick up that advertisement and then the companies say, see, I'm done, right? It's gone out everywhere. But that's not actually correct in terms of that ESDC officer. They're gonna say, did you actually go and post a unique ad? Do you have a unique ad ID number on all these different websites? Not just that JobBank was picked up and automatically populated. And one thing we could add as well is, is the fact that sometimes in the process of advertising, you post on your own website. And what I found, even within our own firm, when I post, we're open, you know, looking for associate lawyers. Um, some job sites actually scrub company websites looking for job postings and then replicate them on their own site. Now, I'm not quite sure what the rationale is, but I started getting a bunch of advertisements myself uh, for positions that we had posted on the website from, you know, various, ad, uh, you know, advertising um, and wage, uh, sorry, uh, position, you know, uh, websites, classifieds. And uh, I, it was really strange. I was like, what the heck's going on here? Where's this coming from? Um, it's interesting, Alicia, as we, as we shift and look at all the different places where these ads can be posted, um, a, a, one big question we get from, from employers with skilled, more professional positions is the social media world, and in particular, advertising on LinkedIn, which is very effective. But how does ESDC treat this? Because I just had a discussion with the bookkeeper as well, saying that they're already getting ads through LinkedIn. Is that good enough for the third ad for this high wage? Um, yeah. And traditionally, and, and of course, you know, ESDC policy changes as well. And they used to say that they didn't really have a manual, but they do have a manual and occasionally will do an access to information and privacy request and get the manual. But for a long time, the advertising platforms that were social media that required users to sign up for an account were not going to be sufficient in and of themselves because it wasn't publicly accessible or that was the argument anyways. So if you're going to be using something like LinkedIn, that's fine, but make sure that you're not relying on that as your national in scope advertisement. So JobBank, two other national in scope, and then if you want to also do LinkedIn, sure, but don't only rely on something that requires membership or an account. Yep, exactly. All right. So we, we've kind of addressed like there's only so much that we can talk about in in this overarching you know everything that can go wrong with lmias because there are so many unique aspects to it and i this is maybe just a little bit of teaser those that are listening 
um, watch and listen because we are in the process of putting together a little, you know, how to foreign worker program seminar directed for employers. So if you're interested, don't hesitate to reach out. Let us know. Um, you can just send an, e- an email to info at healthylaw.com if you'd like to uh, get notified when we officially settle on the, the date for us to do this. And it'll probably be a virtual webinar type scenario. So you can stay in your office and you don't have to travel anywhere. You can watch it from anywhere. But that will be coming. And uh, Alicia and I are also going to take more time. And as we get through the whole Temporary Foreign Worker Program, and we're going to work through the International Mobility Program, like you've heard in other episodes, we will be taking individual podcast episodes and diving deeper into advertising, diving deeper into compliance and things like that. So this is still, even though we're, we're pretty down in the weeds here, um, we will be, uh, you know, we will be focusing in a little bit more in depth on these areas because there's so much for us to talk about. So on the advertising front, other, any other areas, Alicia, that you want to tackle, obviously with the low wage, you know, there are contracts, there's health obligations that employers have to have, transportation covering them, housing, all of those things are all a part of the added obligations placed on employers because of the vulnerability of lower wage individuals. The, the, the belief is if you've got an engineer that's coming in from Germany, they're savvy and they're not going to be, you know, they, they know whether or not they're, they're being exploited by the employer and they won't put up with it. But maybe an agricultural worker who comes from Mexico, who's on some remote farm, they may not be protected in the same way or have the sophistication to, to watch out and take care of their, and protect themselves from exploitation. And I guess it's, it's hard because it, once we start talking about one thing, it, it leads us to other paths and we're all over the place. But, you know, there are some industries as well where advertising is actually not required, like agriculture in some instances. So you need to pay attention to that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's variations on the on the recruiting and in certain sectors, specifically for agriculture, there are mandatory housing. And if you have mandatory housing, then there are housing inspections that have to happen and you've got a housing inspection report that has to get signed off on. So there's all sorts of things in advertising. And the key thing is to keep in mind that it's not just the advertising, it's also recruiting. And so a lot of employers may not be prepared to not only deal with the scheduling of all the ads, keeping them all active, making sure that they're all running concurrently. So the overarching requirement is concurrent advertisements in general, four weeks continuous. Now that might sound easy. You've got three advertising sources, at least. You got to keep them all valid for four weeks continuous. But here's what happens. You try to sign up for your job bank and maybe the employer has to wait to get approved for their account and then once they do the ad the ad has to get approved and that takes longer and in the meantime they've gone and posted their ads on two different national in scope websites and those have started to run but different advertising platforms have different expiry dates and so you have to have basically some sort of way of keeping track of all of your go live dates all of your expiry dates and renew all those ads before they expire because the other requirement is not only do you have to have those ads running concurrently, consecutively for four weeks, that's when you can submit the LMIA. But you have to have those ads continuing to run until you actually get a decision back on the LMIA, which could be another two, three months in the future. 
So advertising is a whole thing in and of itself. And the next thing is the recruiting piece. So having somebody keep track of all the applicants who are applying. We talked about that job match service, making sure that they are actively going in and asking applicants to apply through JobBank. And then keeping track of the reason that all these applicants may or may not be acceptable candidates for the position. What have they done? Have they talked to them? Have they interviewed them? If they interviewed them, why were they not acceptable candidates? What did they check? Was it reasonable for them to check, you know, certain requirements like driver's licenses or certifications? Yes. And it's so hard as we're doing this as a podcast because really there is a systematic way that we do this with our clients. And mm-hmm. we're, we're trying to go through general high-level things that companies fail at, But um, you have to understand that it it all starts with a very, very clear methodology with, you know, you need to make sure that your job description works. You need to ensure that it actually meets the foreign worker, like the the foreign worker meets the requirements of it. You have to make sure that it's not um, overly restrictive beyond what the national occupational classification description says. And all of those things can cause things to fall apart all of those ads that you posted have to be 100% identical. There can't be variation in those ads. You can't have $25 and 30 cents in your, you know, in your indeed ad and then bump it to 26 in, in the job bank and then have those inconsistencies. Your contract that you have with the worker has to be the same. The application form you submit has to be the same. So understand as we're going through this, this is still, even though it feels like we're way down in the weeds, you know, getting our feet stuck in the muck, the reality is, um, you know, this is this is really technical. In some instances, Alicia, this is kind of the bane of our existence as, as immigration <laughs> lawyers because it takes so much more time when you do it properly. And, um, and, you know, this podcast is an opportunity for us to share these issues with companies so they understand why when your immigration lawyer quotes, quotes you a certain fee for this that seems a little higher... This is why it's not just a simple work permit. This is really, really uh, detailed. You know, this is detailed information. Yeah. And we'll talk more about this. We'll make sure to give you guys some more great information about the world of labor market impact assessments and, and where companies can do better and can just understand the process more completely so that you avoid these pitfalls. Indeed. Well, we had intended to talk about a lot more within this podcast, and it's already stretching out a little ways. We've been going strong for just about 45 minutes here, and uh, we will continue on with our with our episodes. Um, you know, one thing I guess we can hit on just as we trail off, um, it's important when you are posting those ads to build in your bonuses and promotions, because whatever you put in there regarding the employment conditions, that is what you will be audited on. And if you have rock star employees that you hire and your company does good and you want to give them a bonus, that can put you offside. We'll cover this in the compliance lesson, you know, the compliance uh, episode that we're going to do here in a, in a few episodes. But, um, but this is all about, you know, just making sure that you're reading the fine print. It's critical that you not gloss over things. And realistically, if you need help, we're here. And we've been through this and we know the pitfalls, we know the areas, we know where there's problems. And so if you have, you know, if you have good qualified representation to help you, at least initially, it can clarify a lot of aspects and avoid you falling down, you know, these, these deep holes that you really can't dig yourself out of because everything is so time sensitive. 
you just can't afford to, uh, yeah, to, to miss out. Um, Alicia, as we sign off, any other last little tips for strengthening the application or, or, or for success as opposed to where things go wrong? Yeah. And the tips for success are generally to make sure that you are thinking about what the ESDC officer would be worried about when they're looking at your company. And one of the things that is important is looking also not only at the advertising and recruiting, but also at the business legitimacy and the need for this position. And so that's another thing that we haven't even kind of pried open yet. But it's important that you have a robust enough financial situation that you can afford the salaries and wages of the people that you want to bring on and that you have a business need and that there's some sort of reason where you can show that you're a legitimate operating company. And so make sure that you have all those incorporation documents and you've got your your tax documents and you've got your PD7As and you've got payroll deductions and all those things properly lined up for your business as well. But I would say that, you know, in the majority of the cases when employers come to me and they say, oh, my L, my A was refused, it's almost always because they fell down on the advertising recruiting or the business legitimacy. And that's a perfect segue, Alicia, into our next episode that is all on what to, you know, how to deal with LMIA refusals. And um, we're going to cover in particular four areas and it will give us an opportunity to, sometimes you learn more, Alicia, from the mistakes of others than, you know, trying to explain all the positive things employers should do. Sometimes understanding the negative things that they should avoid Uh, really, really helps to drive the message home. So make sure you tune into our next episode. We're going to talk about refusals and how to deal with insufficient advertising, business legitimacy, the wage issue and, you know, requirements for the job. And one that we've not addressed or talked about here is when you've got an employer who has a, say, a postgrad work permit holder here who is a rock star and they love them and they're just trying to figure out every single way possible to tailor the job description, job description uh, so specifically to that person that they're the only ones that could possibly qualify, um, and that's that's also one of the the pitfalls that companies fall into because ESDC says, wait a minute, this isn't really a legitimate job offer, and so we'll talk about that in the next episode. So thanks so much, Alicia, and thanks to everyone else. If you have any suggestions for the Canadian Immigration Podcast topics or guests, or if you would like to come join us in, in one of our future episodes, please uh, send an email to uh, mark at canadianimmigrationinstitute.com and, uh, and, or you can also send an email to info at healthylaw.com and just, uh, yeah, give us suggestions. We welcome we welcome your insight. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes or Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, also tune in to our new series where we just completed a, a podcast episode. You've probably already listened to it, um, where you meet, meet the team and we've started our Canadian trivia competition. So you can play along with us and offer suggestions to Igor, who's our host of the podcast, uh, of the trivia competition. And you can join along and see how well you do uh, compared to us here at Healthy Immigration Law. So thanks so much. Have a great, uh, great day, evening, weekend, whenever you're listening to this. Thanks, Alicia. Thanks, Mark.
Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Your trusted source for information on Canadian immigration law policy and practice. If you would like to book a legal consultation, please visit www.holtylaw.com. You can also find lots more helpful information on our Canadian Immigration Institute YouTube channel, where you can join Mark on one of his many Canadian Immigration Live Q&As. See you soon, and all the best as you navigate this crazy world we call Canadian Immigration. Canadian Immigration Park